The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, September 15th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And in an effort to boost The Gist's ratings, we've hit upon a new strategy. What we're going to do is we will just play you excerpts of other podcasts. Let's go now to The Daily from The New York Times. Glenn Thrush speaking. President Trump ordered in Chinese. Okay, you probably need some context here. Thrush, White House reporter, describing a working dinner between Donald Trump and Chuck Schumer. And there is an actual reason I am playing this audio, in fact, because really, if I just wanted to draft off another podcast, I would definitely go with the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, two-parter on Trump's wall. Anyway, I was fascinated by the dish that Glenn Thrush said President Trump had ordered. I was so fascinated that from this point forward, what follows after Glenn Thrush describes the president's entree, will be a bona fide gist-vestigation. Listen. Apparently, the president ate uh, crispy. I, I may be getting this wrong. I've never heard of this, and I'm, I'm a Brooklyn kid and a longtime orderer-inner of Chinese <laughs> food. Crispy, sweet, crispy beef. Now, I, too, am no stranger to Chinese food. In fact, I once got married in a Chinese restaurant. The marriage didn't last, but the food was great. But what is crispy, sweet beef? I've heard of crispy beef. I know beef that is sweet. I've never heard of a sweet, crispy beef. And then suddenly, it hit me what was going on. Now, to confirm my suspicion, I called Shunli Palace, perhaps the first fine dining Chinese restaurant in New York City, delicious. Good afternoon, Shani Palace. Hello, do you have crispy beef? Yes, we do a dry shred crispy beef or crispy orange beef. Wait, okay, so the crispy beef, is that sweet? Yes. So one is shredded, but the orange beef is crispy and sweet. Yeah, Great. and spicy. Okay. The orange flavored. Okay, thank okay. you very much. You're welcome. Thank, thank you. Do you understand what's happening here? There is crispy beef, and there is a kind of sweet beef, but you know what's the beef that is both sweet and crispy? That is called orange beef. And for obvious reasons, President Trump cannot associate himself with orange beef. He can't cop to the orange beef. This has been a gistvestigation. Okay, let's clear the palate now uh, with something other than Tic Tacs. They are a trigger, and trigger brings me to my spiel. Speech is violence on college campuses. I, in the spiel, suggest it is not violence. It is a spiel that grabs you by the lapels and shakes you to the core, but only figuratively. But first, he's post-punk. He's post-pharmacist. That was his backing band. He's Ted Leo. He's here and he's out with his first album in seven years. And man, does he tear a centrist politician held up as a role model of moderation, a new one. William Weld sees the 20th century fading away in the night. The Hanged Man is Ted Leo's newest album. 
It's his first album in, um, I think, seven years? Under my own name, yeah. All right, Ted Leo's here. How are you, Ted? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm well. Yeah. I'm okay. Speaking of well, this is the first <laughs> thing I want to get to. William Weld in the 21st century. Oh, sure. So yeah. most singer-songwriters, the, the, the subject matter they're immediately going to glom onto is, who was the vice presidential running mate of the third-party candidate? Let's, let's have Adam. William felt he could save his country. He gave it away without a What about William Weld? Of all figures, sticks in your craw. It's because of what I think what he represents to me about about the class of quote unquote moderate Republicans, mm-hmm. you know, who who have coddled and enabled this particular moment in time that we find within which we find ourselves. And um, I remember seeing an interview with with him when he had obviously realized what was happening what what we were heading toward in this in the last election season and you know i just found him his coyness about distancing himself from his own ticket but but not uh distancing himself from the republican ticket not you mean distancing uh, himself when he was a libertarian yeah he yeah. at a certain point he distanced himself yeah. from his own ticket <laughs> that's right you know which was a smart move He's a good politician <laughs> you know self-preservation <laughs> yeah. right but uh but you know he wouldn't come out and say um uh explicitly um he was hinting at yeah like yes i endorse hillary clinton but he wouldn't come out and say it and it made me really angry in a lot of ways because i just i just feel like the abdication of responsibility on on the part of um of these, you know, these vaunted moderate Republicans that we hear so much about, you know, it, it, it's enabled a, a generation of hurt. Do you blame them more than the real monsters, the actual Donald Trump, or is it more, I, I could think of a few possibilities. It, it, it's a little underexplored in terms of art. There might be a lot more anti-Trump protest songs than mm-hmm. William Weld protest songs. Yeah. Or is it more that, you know, faux quote about all that needs for evil to rise is good men do nothing? I think the latter to yep. a certain degree. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily lay any more blame at the at the feet of people who enable a thing than the people who do a thing. But, you, know, you know, I actually think of it like a guy like Trump is almost a force of nature. What are you going to talk to this guy? But a guy like Weld seems reasonable, is reasonable. If he heard the song, he might have a chance to actually listen and contemplate it, whereas, you know, Trump is <laughs> vibrating on his own frequency. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I never assume that any politician is going to actually hear a song of mine. And I, I'm not like uh, writing about Trump at this point is also like I'm like back in the Bush era. I remember, you know, being asked about songs that I was that I was writing and I was like. I'm not I don't expect Donald Rumsfeld to hear my song and change, you know, decide to change foreign policy. Maybe the, he will. Know. It's an unknown right. unknown, yeah. But what I but what I do, you know, what I do care about is is you know, thinking about the things that affect people in my immediate community and and in particular with William with the William Weld song, not William Weld yeah. himself, but you know, I was just thinking about like women in this ele- in this election season and uh, men in this election season, and I I I will cop to you know possibly unjustly uh, using him as a stand-in for uh, men. Yeah, yeah, he is. 
He is the manly sort of man from the last century, a patrician figure. There are those who said that his governor's race between, it was him and Romney, was the most high-minded affair. Exactly. And so yeah. you're saying, you know what, That's maybe that's true, maybe that's bullshit, but look where, look where he brought us now. Yeah. So how does it come to music? Uh, I'm going to guess... So you said, and you would be you would be unwise to think that your music's really going to change anything. It's got to come from all the songs that are not political, just a place of emotion. Mm -hmm. If you're reading this all the time as a Slate Plus subscriber, that's thirty five dollars first year, fifty each additional. As a Slate Plus subscriber, anyone else who's plugged into the world, sometimes you feel emotion, and the emotion goes back to a real world event, and in fact, sometimes a third party vice presidential candidate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, I. I, uh, What are you asking there? (laughs) Yeah. Well, the the the. impetus for writing a specific song like that right. as specific and uh, recondite as it is probably I'm going to guess isn't much different from the impetus for writing a universal song about love or anger or anything else no I think you're right about that um, a, a thing that always stuck with me was um, the UK anarcho punk band crass um, in one of their songs uh, said um, you know people always ask us why don't you write love songs and their answer was like something to the effect of, uh, well, everything we write is a love song. Like uh-huh. our love of life is total, you know, like everything yeah. we write is a love song. Yeah. And I, I, I identify with that. I think, yeah. They say cynics are the most romantic. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. John Stewart said that about himself. Really? People call me cynical. I have no idea what they mean. Right. It's just that I'm most idealistic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like I'm more easy to disappoint. I think artists are probably like this. They're more easy to disappoint than say a William Well type. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I mean, I think you're right. If you, if you, if you're engaged, if you're engaged with something, it's, it's because you care about it. You yeah. Know? And this album, its name is The Hanged Man. What, what, are you The Hanged Man? Well, yeah, you know, it's from the tarot. It's about not fighting your circumstances. It's about um, entering a willing state of suspension, accepting that suspension uh, in and in the actual, um, you know, mythology of the image. It goes back to like Odin hanging himself from the world tree and letting the crow peck out his eye and and hopes that that some wisdom would come to him, you know, would be received. And um, I found myself in a similar place um, through struggling and pushing and you know fighting against my circumstances and then and then having to uh, just kind of accept the the flow of things and settle in and it wound up being um fruitful for me to do that in a lot of ways both you know personal and artistic or if you can separate them you know <laughs> so how is it i know you're not a drinker but how is it different from say the serenity prayer oh i'm a drinker oh you are oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no it's not a lot dif- different from the serenity prayer well the crows are different from right, acceptance right. <laughs> there's a true. line between crows and serenity yeah well the crows aren't actually in the tarot deck but no. the, uh, but the uh, um yeah no the, the that's uh i mean that's that's actually a, it is a a good uh, analogy. I think that um, you know, I, I am not in AA, but I do spend some time in Al-Anon, and okay. um, so I'm familiar with the Serenity Prayer, and uh, it's um, it's one of the best uh, distillations of the whole thing. Wait, I guess my question though is that the idea of the hangman it seemed more active, and definitely the Odin analogy. It seems more like fighting through to get to some place of realization versus I've never done any 12 step stuff, mm-hmm. but serenity seems Zen. Serenity the hangman seems, seems more punk. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, but it is, it, it, it's not about fighting actually. It's about, it's about, um, it's specifically about not fighting, you know, it's specifically about 
pausing. And in the sense of serenity, it is about accepting that there are things that you cannot change, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe refocusing or something like that. Which know? songs on the album most reflect that theme, would you say? Ooh, uh, well, there's a song called The Future, parentheses, is learning to wait around for things you didn't know you wanted to wait for, close parentheses. <laughs> that obviously <laughs> would, would go with it. There's a the there's a song called "Used to Believe" that probably jibes with that. "Let's Stay on the Moon" is right in there. Yeah, there and there are probably one or two others. On Do that. you think that you know how old are you, by the way? Forty-seven. Okay, so we're approximately the same age. Do you think wisdom is actually an accumulation of years and things you've seen, or do you think, and I'm beginning to suspect, a lot of it is just like the change in the chemical balances in your body? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're right about that. I mean. Or it's maybe a chicken and egg thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, right, right, right. Your 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 motor starts stops revving at that engine, and for a second, you could maybe glean an insight. Yeah, because you're not you're either working in your head or th- wanting to throw a punch or take a swig or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, maybe my metabolism slowed down. <laughs> you know, it has something to do with it too. Do you think your singing improved? I do. I do too. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And the mic, I'm watching this video for Can't Go Back. Oh my God, the microphone work. Just the thanks. mic placement all over the place. I, I was really <laughs> I was really channeling Lou Rawls. With that. <laughs> yeah. And and then there are shots of you on the ivories when I don't know if there's a piano part in the song corresponding to you sitting in the piano in the video. <laughs> it's, it's close. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I think I do a little like pull down glissando thing when it doesn't actually happen in the, in the song. So, yeah. The how? Why did your uh, why did your singing improve? Did you work on it? Yeah, you know, I, I really I really stopped touring with my band a long time ago at this point. And in addition to the to the project with Amy, I, I have been playing a lot, but I'm playing solo. And I yeah. think the context of playing solo, where it's just me and my guitar, and I really have to focus on my singing a lot more. And the work with Amy, you know, she is a singer's singer. And we did a lot of work on on our harmonies and um, our phrasing and, yeah. and really getting that tight. And it definitely, it definitely helped me, you know, in a million ways. And did her um, anti-radical Republican politics improve <laughs> as a result of hanging out with you? She was already there. She yeah. was already there. Yeah. <laughs> Ted Leo's new album is The Hanged Man. It's his first one in 10 years. I follow this guy on Twitter, and you're also an excellent podcast guest. Oh, thank like you. Like a, uh, a lot of the FMU shows you were uh-huh. a mainstay on, and yeah. I always enjoyed your contribution, I Ted. I appreciate it. Thanks. Ted Leo, The Hanged Man. Thank you. Good to talk to you. You too. And now the spiel. At Berkeley yesterday, the conservative columnist and talk show host Ben Shapiro gave a speech and protesters chanted. They're saying speech is violence. We will not be silent. 
speech is violence. And then, because they were right about that, their words immediately decapitated their opponents who had been laughing right up until that moment. Speech is violence. That is nonsense. There is good speech. There is bad speech. There is protected speech. And there is rare, unprotected speech. Since I live a life giving out my ideas, I hope my audience doesn't require medical treatment afterwards. Now, I have to say, that's only about the speech. It doesn't go for the song. I get it that when I sing, may I suggest to you a provider with a low deductible. I do understand protesting. I understand peacefully protesting. A provocateur like Milo speaking on your campus, or if Ann Coulter stops by, she's like a reverse Tinkerbell who draws sustenance the less you believe in her. But Ben Shapiro? I like Ben Shapiro. I disagree with Ben Shapiro a majority of the time. A super majority, easily. So what? He makes the best case for his side, and that is why I seek him out. I also discovered the National Review Editor's podcast. That's a good one. I value these guys, they're all guys, for their intelligence, their verbal dexterity, their general honesty. They're not as honest and accurate as Slate, but they're generally more accurate than, let's say, Salon. Because the conservatives I listen to do not make their case with lies. They often make a case that I could dispute, but it's by having a different interpretation or adhering to different values or looking at a different set of facts. Not opposite facts, just a different set. In a second, I will play an example from Ben Shapiro's Berkeley speech. Now, overall, my review, I don't think the speech was really that good. I don't think it was as good as a typical episode of his show. I understand why. Shapiro was self-congratulatory. This was a big moment. They spent over half a million dollars in security. There was a lot of thought that he wouldn't be able to pull it off. So he was celebrating in the audience. His adoring fans found it cathartic. Fine. Also, A lot of what he spoke about was just broadly his philosophy. I don't use him for that. I understand where he's coming from. I'm more interested in the specific application of his philosophy than in him uh, broadly sketching out his worldview. That said, let's just play an example of something where he made an assertion that I disagree with, but I don't think was a lie. Here you go. Income inequality is not the big problem. Nobody rich is making you poor. Well, I got to say, in some cases, that is why people are poor. The wealthy owners of the Case Farms chicken plant in Ohio so abuse their Guatemalan workers as to preclude them any access to a higher rung on the wealth ladder. That goes on. Some of the immiseration of the American worker, the American full-time worker, is because American law does not force American employers to pay an above-the-poverty-line wage. And some of those employers are indeed rich. So. I take issue with that. And then there was this. I mean, the basic rule is that if you don't commit crime, you're not going to be arrested for it. The police are not going around arresting black people for the fun of it. They're going around arresting criminals based on criminal reports, which is why the number of criminal reports based on race matches up exactly with the number of criminal arrests based on race. I don't think cops arrest people for fun, but they sometimes do it because of the stop and frisk policy, and that's not based on reports. So what's going on here is Shapiro is using one criteria to judge if policing is fair. Arrests stem from reports. I would use different criteria. I wouldn't throw that out, but I would say, let's look at the percentage of stops where someone hasn't committed a crime. Let's look at the race of those people who are stopped. Let's look at differing incarceration rates by race. Let's look at deadly encounters with police by rates. But knowing that he's citing reporting rates tells me at the very least that this is a talking point in the law and order arsenal. And now I can think about it. Now I can rebut it. Maybe even it'll convince me. Didn't, but it could have. This is how exposing yourself to views you disagree with works. And it does work. 
I'm a better citizen because of it. I'm actually better at defending my own position because of it. The protesters do not agree with me. They argue that they'd be hurt by his words, by his ideas. And it's not just one group of chanters. The American Freshman Survey asks 140,000 college students what they think. And in 2015... 43% of American freshmen agreed that college campuses should be able to ban extreme speakers. Now, I guess we could quibble about the definition of extreme, but for me, the salient point was when the same question was asked in 1984, the percentage was 20%. So it's more than doubled since, well, before I was in college. There are a lot of young people today who just cannot deal with the opposing viewpoint. I call it dispute dysfunction. I used to chalk it up to exaggeration. I didn't think it was widespread. I mean, you could pluck an example from this college or that college and make the exceptions seem like the rule. Motivated conservatives are really good at drumming up panic. Kids in their drugs, kids in their sex, kids in their violent video games, kids in their hostility toward disagreement. There's just less temperance for not even ideas that you disagree with, but ideas that in the moment make you feel uncomfortable. Think about Sarah Silverman's comic persona. It was, and this was true 10, definitely 20 years ago, that if your intention was to lampoon something or to make a broader point, then that's what should shine through. So Sarah Silverman played a dumb person who said benighted things. She was trading on what seemed like prejudices, but making a point. She was poking fun at herself and that kind of person. Sarah Silverman has had to retire that persona, and it wasn't just that she got tired of it. The times are no longer hospitable to that sort of thing. The intentions of someone lampooning a mindset are immaterial if words, just the words, are violence. Today, also, we have a ready means of expressing hurt, Twitter, and we have the amplification machine, Facebook. And sensitivities have changed. Of course they've changed. Think about this. If you're under 30 and you voted for the more liberal candidate in the last three presidential elections, you have never voted for a white man for president. That's a, that's a form of progress. I'll acknowledge that. And a lot of what the under 30 set, I take it up to about 32, believes in is actually a good thing. There are a lot more tolerance of different kinds of people. There's openness to differences. There's kindness to the underdog. There's a desire to see social justice for previously discriminated against communities. That's all good. But the process by which we engage with people not already on that page is troubling. I'm not happy with this state of affairs. I think this closed-mindedness portends pretty bad things for our democracy. I wonder what the effects will be. Some tell me campuses have always been hotbeds. Sure, but hotbeds of dissent. Today's campuses, and it's not just campuses, oppose dissent. So I look back on previous models of change. I try to find a model for this moment that's playing out now. Maybe it'll be like the hippies. So lived on communes, imagined no possessions. Well, sure. Societal mores were loosened around issues of sex and decorum, and to the positive, environmentalism and the women's movement flourished. But a possessionless society? I would say basic issues of capitalism didn't change much. Or maybe the disputation dysfunction will be as with the people we used to call, and frankly write off, as Jesus freaks. They seem marginal. Then they seemed a bit more pervasive, but not direly so. And then one day we looked and there was this huge voting block called evangelicals who had to be catered to. 
And now speech is violence, words are hurt, dissent is fascism. I have an alternative explanation or two. One is that I'm 45 and what's going on now is the same as it ever was. Or maybe they're right, the kids are right, and I'm just unwoke McGillicuddy over here. Maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I'm getting played by the right. And you could feel free to disagree. In fact, I implore you to. And that's it for today's show. Hey, I've got an announcement before I even get to the credits. For the second time ever, we're doing a GIST live show. Now, we did an election special, and I've appeared on different Gab Fests, but there was one time, it was like two and a half years ago, it was in Brooklyn, and we did a live show. It was great. The people who went liked it took a lot out of me. But I've agreed, I'm going to give my all to you at this live show, while at the same time doing a daily show. This show will not be in Brooklyn or the New York area. The Gist Live, Pesca on the Potomac at the Hamilton Theater in Washington, D.C., The date is Tuesday, November 28th, the evening of Tuesday, November 28th, Hamilton Theater, Washington, D.C. For tickets and info, go to slate.com slash live. More info in this space. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who always orders the triple delight at Chinese restaurants. It's beef, shrimp, and the Trump Tower taco salad. Happy Cinco de Mayo. Dan Schrader also produced the gist. His go-to Chinese dish is butterfly shrimp with bacon. A glorious combination Ben Shapiro will never sample. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's a huge fan of the sweet and savory chicken. Or as they call it where he comes from in Kansas, chicken McNuggets with the green colored dipping sauce. The gist. You know, thinking about all this Chinese food is making me hungry. But don't worry, because in a half hour, nothing. Nothing will change. This is the go-to Chinese food reference, and it is just not true. You do not feel hungry a half hour later. It is pure hack comedy. It's an unsatisfying joke. Sure, you might laugh, but a half second later, you'll be empty. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.